Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director of Communication and Marketing here at Albany Law School. On this episode of the podcast, we're dropping in on the first Monday series where professors Ted DeBarbieri and Pat Rahan will be exploring presidential powers, how those powers have expanded under both major political parties in recent years, and the consequences of the expansion of executive power. They're going to be speaking with an expert on this one from Syracuse University, Professor David Driesen. Before we get to it, though, as always, make sure to check out albanylaw.edu slash coronavirus just to stay up to date on everything happening here on campus for the COVID-19 pandemic. Also check out albanylaw.edu slash commencement to make sure you have all the details on our upcoming commencement ceremonies. And if you like what you hear in this episode of the podcast, you can subscribe on any of the major podcast services or check out our SoundCloud account. Also make sure to sign up on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram to keep up to date on everything happening here at Albany Law School. Enough from me, though. Let's drop in on First Mondays. Welcome to First Mondays, which is being held on a Monday, but not on the first Monday. For those of you outside the law school, our, our students will be finishing up their coursework in the early part of next week. And we suspected that as interesting as this topic is that uh, we have far more people coming uh, a week before the end of classes than a day before the end of classes. So thank you so much for, for being here for this last first Monday of our second season. We're looking forward to season three next year with understanding the history of things falling apart in the third season. We're dedicated to that not happening. Just uh, for those of you for whom this is the first visit to first Mondays, our purpose is to bring experts in from various areas of law that are very much a part of current events and to look at the current events that we learn about in podcasts and in radio and television to bring the light of a legal analysis to those events and, and to learn from, from that. So our idea is to be respectful of, of all respectful opinions and to, uh, and to, to learn about issues of the day. With that, I'll turn on. Oh, one final thing. As this is the end of the, the second season, I wanted to express Professor DeBarbieri and my gratitude to the Institutional Advancement uh, Office, to Jeff Siever in particular, for, for helping to, to, to form this program, to create the podcasts and everything else. We're, we're deeply grateful, Jeff. And if you'd pass that on to your, your staff, we'd appreciate it. Ted? Thanks, uh, thanks, Pat. We are extremely fortunate today to have with us. Um, and my, my audio, okay? Yeah, great. We're, we're extremely fortunate to have David Dreesen with us today, who's university professor at Syracuse University College of Law. Uh, professor Dreesen is uh, researches in environmental law, law and economics, and relevant today for us in particular, constitutional law. And um, in just a very short uh, bit of background, um, Professor Dreesen uh, has particular expertise around environmental law, uh, including uh, testimony before Congress uh, with respect to the Clean Air Act, uh, prior work at the National Resources Defense Council, and relevant to my co-host today, uh, was a clerk on the Washington uh, State Supreme Court, so has some Pacific Northwest uh, court experience. Which judge just did you clerk for? Uh, Justice Otter. Oh, wonderful. I clerk for Justice Stafford. 
Oh, okay. Very nice. Neat. Yeah. Just as, 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 as serendipitous connection here. Yeah. Uh, Professor Dreesen also has a master's from the Yale School of Music, which I thought was excellent too. Um, but we're you know here today we're 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 here today to talk about the expansion of presidential power. Relevant to that uh, is Professor Dreesen's work, uh, a recent article um, in the Hastings Law Journal on the unitary executive theory in a comparative context. Um, he's expanded on this article in a forthcoming book uh, entitled The Specter of Dictatorship, Judicial Enabling of Presidential Power, which is forthcoming from Stanford Press. Um, in that book, the uh, argument essentially that is that Professor Dreesen is advancing is an insufficiently const um, constrained presidency is one of the most um, important systemic threats to democracy. So we are really, really excited to have Professor Dreesen here today to talk about his uh, recent work around uh, unitary executive and the expansion of presidential powers under um, you know, both political parties. So uh, you know, Professor Dreesen, we, we've asked you to, to present a little bit on your work, um, you know, maybe over the next 20 or 25 minutes. We'll invite questions to and from our students and our faculty who are who are joining here. I, I noticed uh, my colleague Professor Jim uh, is here, who is one of your con law students. He shared so uh, excited to have uh, uh, a number of connections here today. So welcome and look forward to you. I, I see your slides up now, and uh, we'll turn the floor over to you. Um, thanks very much, and I'm really pleased to be here. I really appreciate this uh, invitation. This is a great group. I'm pleased to see Lewis again, uh, and I noticed a couple, at least one of my research assistants has joined us as well, so that's nice, and uh, this is a great program. I'm pleased to be a part of it. Um, so I'm going to present an article that is derived from a book of mine that's forthcoming. The article is already out. It's called The Unitary Executive Theory in Comparative Context. And the unitary executive theory is simply the theory that uh, the president should have sole control over the executive branch of government. It's traditionally debated in very parochial terms. The supporters of the theory maintain that the original intent is that the president should have this complete control. And uh, while I've argued that that's not correct, um, most of the opponents of this theory uh, argue in terms of the function and history of US administrative law, where we have traditions like independent agencies and independent prosecutors uh, that are in tension um, with this theory. And they maintain that this provides for good balance between expert independence and uh, political control. Um, and what this book does, uh, this article does in the book, is it looks at this through the lens of comparative constitutional law, that is, in particular, I look at three recent cases when heads of state in democratic countries have destroyed or impaired um, their democracies over time and looked at the role of the executive branch in doing that. And what you find is that the kind of centralized control that Unitarians call for uh, has been a major cause of democratic decline and even loss. And so, I'm going to present it first by speaking a little bit about what the unitary executive theory is. Then I'm going to focus on three countries, Hungary, Turkey, and Poland, that have had big declines, and except in the case of Poland, I would argue, uh, ending of democracy over time. Uh, and then finally, I'm going to look a little bit through our own history and argue 
that some of the erosion of the rule of law that can lead to democracy loss that we see in these countries that have you know, moved toward autocracy, um, we've seen it from time to time in the US as well. If you look at our history closely, you've seen this, including recently. Um, so to begin with, I said the unitary executive theory is the theory that the president has control over executive branch of government. In particular, Unitarians, that is the supporters of this theory, not the religious branch, um, think that uh, the president has an unfettered right to remove executive branch officials. So he can remove them for political reasons. Even if they're doing their duties properly, he can say, you're out of there. And this is a means of him being able to tell them exactly what to do. So they don't accept the idea that government agencies have any authority, it's all the president's authority. Now, the Supreme Court more or less embraced this theory uh, for the first time last July in a case called Silo Law versus Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And in that case, the court held that the president must be able to remove for political reasons or no reason at all, the head of any government agency, no matter what Congress has said. Uh, it nominally left intact some older case law that protects uh, members of independent commissions from political removal. Uh, but it contains language in it that suggests it may go further in, in the future. And the theory certainly points to a complete subjugation of the administrative state uh, to the president, which would be very different from the way the United States has been run ever. Um, now, if you put this in comparative context, um, Turkey, Hungary, and Poland are examples of what we call democratic erosion, meaning the democracy is eroded or destroyed without a sudden violent coup. But over a period of 10 years or more, we found democracies can disappear. And when you look at what has happened in those countries, one key reason, uh, key, key lesson is that autoc autocrats create autocracy. And what I mean by that is in all these cases, the changes, which are quite complex, but they're driven by a single person who is uh, exercising control over political party and obtaining more control over everything else to defeat checks and balances. And one of the checks and balances that's defeated are what are called internal separation of powers. This is something that's not often covered explicitly in your con law course, but scholars recognize that sometimes uh, executive branch officials like independent commissioners or attorneys general uh, check presidential power because they stand up for the rule of law and will sometimes not um, cooperate if the president tries to undermine it. Um, and so in all these cases, the, the leaders, uh, two of them elected, one of them the head of a major political party, um, have undermined multi-party and independent institutions and undermined the civil service. So you see thousands of government officials uh, cast out of their jobs uh, and sending a strong message that if you don't agree, uh, obey the chief executive, you're in trouble. And that's served as a step toward establishing an autocracy. Now, in particular, the way the centralization undermines democracy is basically through three things. It undermines the rule of law. It tilts the electoral playing field toward the uh, the head of state and his, and his party. Uh, they don't end elections in any of these countries, but the elections are very unfair. And then third, 
it shrinks the public space for public debate, making it very hard for opposition media outlets to exist. Um, and what, to get at this link between centralization control of the executive branch and the dem democracy destruction, I wanna focus on three bureaucracies that are very important to democratic functioning. One is the prosecution service, the other electoral commission, and the third is the media authority. Um, but bear in mind that actually uh, any government agency can be used to help entrench an autocrat in power or to defeat his enemies. Um, so the prosecution service has played a key role in undermining the rule of law. And the way that it's done that, in all these cases, we start out with better protections for prosecutorial independence than we have because these countries have all have experience with Nazism or communism, and they've developed more robust mechanisms to protect prosecutorial independence than we have. Um, and what the governments do is they undermine that independence. They create a situation where basically the prosecutors under the control of the head of state. And when that happens, they undermine the rule of law by protecting regime supporters from prosecution and persecuting political opponents. So the law no longer, nobody's really serving the objectives of the law. The law becomes an excuse to entrench the autocrat in power. How they do this varies. So Viktor Orban, um, the prime minister of Hungary is elected around 2010. Um, the way he's done this is he, he brings corruption charges against political opponents, or his prosecutor does. And they announce them on the eve of elections, which usually suffices to defeat them. And then after the election is over, he drops charges, which evades the uh, embarrassment of having a judge say this is bogus. Um, so escapes judicial checks on autocracy, basically. Uh, Victor, uh, Tayyip Recep Erdogan, the president of Turkey, has been in power a very long time. He uh, created power over the prosecution service, originally started to do this in response to the prosecution services investigation of his AKP party uh, for corruption. And what he does is he started verbally attacking the prosecutors, then he took away their police resources, and finally he transferred the cases to more friendly prosecutors. They took other steps to institutionalize this, um, and over time gained uh, pretty thorough control over the prosecution service. And it, um, what he first did is, first of all, they would never, uh, he, he protected his own, but then they also prosecuted uh, political opponents for minor offenses, offenses that everybody, laws that everybody, violating laws that everybody violates in Turkey, like tax codes and building codes, or nearly everybody. But it would be selective, they'd only prosecute their political opponents for this. After a coup attempt that failed in 2016 against Erdogan, uh, he became a little more virulent and started bringing terrorism charges against political opponents uh, and jailing people for long periods of time. Poland's a little different situation. He too has seized centralized control over the prosecution service and he's been threatening and sometimes bringing cases against dissidents uh, so far as I know, he hasn't succeeded in convicting anybody yet. There are a number of checks that are preventing that, uh, including the European Union's Court of Human Rights, sometimes resistance by prosecutors and some independents remaining in the judges, although he's working on changing that. Um, 
but still the threat of prosecution and, and the, the ordeal of going through a trial can be an intimidating thing and cause people to uh, not resist a regime that should be resisted. Um, the leading expert on Poland's democratic decline is, under, is, is being tried criminally for, for libel, actually, as the last time I checked. There's a similar story with respect to the media authority. There are attempts in all functioning democracies, there's some sort of mechanism for making the media authority independent, like our Federal Communications Commission. And they changed those mechanisms in all three countries. In uh, Park Poland and Hungary, public television, which is much more important there than it is here, became a major propaganda organ for the government. In Poland, I went and did some research there, and a lot of people believe that the uh, public television service now is a more virulent pro-government propaganda or, uh, or organ than it was under the communists. Um, both countries use economic pressures to try to get rid of opposition media, like withholding state advertising dollars and um, funneling them toward favorable media outlets. They also withhold licensing from uh, news stations that might not be aligned with the government. In Hungary, all these pressures have led to, this, have led to the complete ending of opposition media, except for a few websites in Budapest. Uh, in Turkey, it started out with these licensing and economic pressures. After the coup, it moved to actually shutdowns of opposition media outlets and the jailing of journalists on a massive scale. Um, so there's very little free pass left in these two countries and Poland is slowly moving in the same direction. Electoral commissions. Um, the Hungarian system was you had a multi-party commission with all five parties having representation. They would choose the others. Um, what uh, Viktor Orban did is he used his removal power that he, that he developed to get rid of the opposition figures. He put his own party, Fidesz, in charge of the commission. As a consequence of that, it's now impossible for opposition parties to get ballot measures on the, on the ballot referenda. And that's important because the passage of a referendum that is different from the policy of the government can bring down the government in a parliamentary democracy, which Hungary used to be. Um, the Electoral Commission also sends confusing information to Hungarians living in exile who have a right to vote and are generally opposed to the Orban government. On the other hand, they facilitate voting by ethnic Hungarians uh, living in countries outside of near Hungary, but are not Hungarian citizens who have been given a right to vote in Hungarian elections. Um, the Turkish Commission, Electoral Commission has been dominated by the AKP, which is Erdogan's party. Um, one of the key moves in establishing autocracy in Hungary was the passage of a referendum in 2017. This referendum created the kind of state that Unitarians call for. That is, it gave the president the right to decide by himself all legal issues that the executive branch might resolve, leaving nothing to, to be independent by agencies. Um, it gives them a thoroughgoing removal power and so on. And this referendum was actually very close, but the electoral commissions accepted unstamped ballots, which are illegal under Turkish law. So we can't know if he won it fair and square, uh, but he did win it. And the, the commission also rejected municipal election results. 
in 2019 in Istanbul and other major Turkish cities where the opposition actually won mayoral races. This didn't work. The reruns, the opposition did even better. But there's a you know thumb on the scale from the Electoral Commission. Uh, Poland is the same story, but we're not as far along. Oops, yeah. So with that, so what you see then is the centralization of power undermines the rule of law, tilts the electoral playing field, and um, ends up shrinking the space for public debate. And this is done because the officials running the agencies that power to do these things are no longer independent. They're chosen and uh, basically ruled by the desires of the head of state. And so, you know, what this teaches you, if you have this kind of structure, the head of state can use it to undermine a democracy. And actually our own uh, history suggests that it can be used in this way. And so I wanted to look back uh, at some recent cases, we have examples of this. The most uh, virulent example of this, uh, at least before Trump and maybe period is Andrew Johnson, who was a white supremacist. And Andrew Johnson had a policy of not protecting free blacks and union soldiers from massacres and murders of the South or to keep uh, former Confederate leaders from assuming office in the new state governments. Um, and he effectuated that policy partly through terror by firing lots of postmasters and treasury officials who disagreed. People have no operational role in implementing this policy, just functionaries, just firing people who disagree, which is very much like what you see in authoritarian governments. Then um, at the Reconstruction Congress passed the first Reconstruction Act, which required equal protection for black citizens. And it wasn't a metaphor. People were getting murdered, this protection. Um, but mindful that Jack Johnson had been firing people to undermine the construction policy of the Congress before this, they passed a Tenure of Office Act, which forbade Johnson's firing anybody without the consent of the Senate. Um, Johnson fired Edward Stanton, the Secretary of War, who was implementing the Reconstruction legislation anyway. They impeached him for it. And the majority of the Senate thought he should be removed from office, but he remained in office because he was one show, the Senate was one, show, one vote shy of the two thirds required for removal. Um, so Johnson was pretty thoroughly undermining the democracy by just simply refusing to follow what the, the law on the most important issues of the day. Richard Nixon uh, used firing of government officials to try to undermine elections. He investigated uh, order of break-in of the Democratic Committee headquarters in Watergate, hoping to find dirt on his opponents that would uh, change the election results. Um, and when his, uh, when, so the Attorney General appointed a special prosecutor to investigate, um, Nixon demanded that the Attorney General fire him. He tried to exercise that unitary executive authority and the Attorney General resigned. And then he tried to order his successor to do it and he resigned. And finally they got down to what an autocrat likes, uh, somebody would do what he's told and Robert Bork fired the uh, special counsel but there was a rebellion against this in Congress and there was a significant grounds for Nixon's impeachment articles and Nixon knew he could not win this and he resigned because it's clear that both political parties were determined to remove him. 
we saw much the same uh, pattern in Donald Trump's administration. Uh, he asked the Department of Justice not to prosecute Republicans for corruption. This earned him an enunciation from the Federalist Society, uh, which thought this was too much. He also consistently asked um, the Justice Department to attack his enemies, to prosecute or jail Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, James Comey, who's a Republican, Oakland Mayor Libby Schaaf. Um, the Justice Department, so far as I can tell, did not agree to any of these requests except the request to investigate Hunter Biden, which is still underway. But when the Justice Department did not initially announce a investigation of Hunter Biden, uh, Donald Trump tried to get that same Orban tactic implemented by getting the, Hungar the Ukrainians to announce an investigation of Hunter Biden. Uh, but he backed, but that, and that led to his impeachment over and not his removal. Um, and Trump also used economic pressures using his control, what control he had over the executive branch. Uh, an example would be uh, the uh, denial of a contract to Amazon Web Services, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, who controls Washington Post, a major opposition media outlet from his perspective. And Trump has also used libel suits to try to intimidate uh, critics, which is also a tactic we see in these authoritarian regimes. So you see very similar things, even with the partial control of the executive branch that President Trump had. And now this whole perspective kind of changes the way I look at some of the more recent developments since Trump. So you have this new voting law, law in Georgia that's been widely denounced as reintroducing Jim Crow because it makes it harder to vote. And that can be especially difficult for black citizens who are often under time stress because they don't have a lot of money. Um, but to my mind, the, um, the, most, the thing that reminds me even more of these autocracies are there provisions in that bill that allow the legislature to seize control of electoral commissions, which throughout the United States are bipartisan and in Georgia, they're bipartisan. So it creates the possibility of partisan control over the Electoral Commission, which could be a tool for changing electoral results. Um, so by way of conclusion, the head of state, in almost every case I know of, uh, drives democratic erosion. Uh, centralized control of, of the bureaucracy is a recipe for autocracy. It creates a vital precondition for it. Uh, and if you have a president that's inclined that way, it can lead to that. Um, in Hungary, Poland, and Turkey, uh, legislation or constitutional amendments created the centralized the control, mostly that I've discussed. Uh, in the US, we can't amend the constitution very easily, and there hasn't been enough legislative support to change the structure that way. But the Supreme Court is playing the role of centralizing power in the executive branch of government. So it's not being done by, it's being done ironically by less democratic processes in the US than we saw in Hungary, Poland, and Turkey. So with that, I'll, well, I'll just add two things. Uh, one thing, this article distills lessons from a book called The Specter of Dictatorship, Judicial Enabling of Presidential Power that's being published, it's a broader look at this role of executive power and the Supreme Court's jurisprudence in creating risks to democracy. And uh, that 
book that was be coming out in Stanford University Press in July and is currently available uh, for ordering on Amazon. So with that, I will welcome your questions. <laughs> Thanks so much, David, uh, for that presentation. Um, I, I just to you know, sort of while folks develop their questions, or um, I, I'll just sort of jump in. I, it, it, um, with the with respect to the, the CFPB case, is is it a SALA law or SHALA? I think it's called SILA law, but actually Sorry. I may have that wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So with respect to SILA, I mean, you're you're arguing that SILA adopts the unitary executive theory and essentially amends the constitution to, uh, to permit the president to, to fire based on a political decision. Um, it, it seems like the alternative um, in sort of in Kagan's dissent, and you, you talk a little bit about Cass Sunstein's approach with respect to um, Department of Justice, making Department of Justice an independent agency. It seems like the alternative is more congressional power, right? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So what the silo law court held is that for cause removal protection of the of a head of a government agency is unconstitutional. And for cause removal protection, uh, that the, the provision they were looking at did give the president to remove power to remove the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB. But it, it, he could only do it if there was a breach of duty. And so they said, that's not enough. The president must have this political power. And the court did that because it believes that that's what the grant of the executive power to the president in the constitution requires. Now the court nominally kept intact some older case law. It said, and it's not clear that they're completely adopting the usual unitary executive theory Actually, they declared their allegiance to it. But if you read the case very carefully, they're relying on a broader separation of powers rationale, which I could discuss. But it's, it's a view of separation of powers that basically denies that the president can be a threat of ending democracy and sees bureaucrats as the threat to democracy and liberty, or at least to liberty. Um, but the they did preserve exceptions for independent agencies and inferior officers. They could have remove, uh, for cause removal protection, but uh, the court suggested that that might only be the case if they're not exercising policy-making authority for inferior officers. And if they offer, and they have no executive authority for independent commissioners. So that, depending on how that's applied, that could lead to a lot of, uh, control over vast reaches that have been walled off really in previous case law. Oh they also God. said that one other thing, they also also said that that the that the that the the, the, the officers of the government must fear and obey the president. This is a starkly authoritarian vision in my view. Oh, that that's all yeah. <laughs> Following along from uh, Ted's point with respect to this how much is, how much ought we be concerned with the relative paralysis of the legislative branch right now to, to serve as, as a, a check on, on presidential power? And, um, you know, obviously within the context you're talking about, but, but just in general. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a huge concern. Uh, for one thing, I'm, I mean, one, some of the, you know, there's this question of larger forces. I have a kind of a institutional executive branch focus, but one of the realities across polities, if you have a lot of partisan division so that legislative bodies are incapable of delivering sensible legislation on pressing problems, there is a tendency to choose autocracy. And the other thing that's important is that while actually there's some, if you read the law review literature, there's sort of this view that the threat of autocracy is when the legislature and the president all agree. Mm -hmm. That's not true. There's no evidence. I don't know of a single case where that has been, except the French Revolution, where that's been which is autocracy. Instead, when a legislature is divided, well, that can be the case, but the other, the partisan division is important. If the Congress can't check the president, then the president can assume enormous power with the power he's already got. And I argue in the book, and I think, I can't remember if I put it in the article, that it's actually, probably did, that what's necessary is he has to have control of the Senate because that gives him the authority to get the people he wants in place. After that, the rule of law is just dependent on how, how much conscience there is among people, and he has a lot of control to drive that out over time. It was just so striking when you put up the, the list of, of presidents that, you know, one of, one of the things that, that saved the nation in the, in the uh, Nixon administration was that, that Congress finally stood up to it, right? And it sounds like in the Johnson administration as well, that Congress at least tried to stand up to it. Yeah, I mean, right. So impeachment is sort of the ultimate check on all of this. And the question is, you know, how much do you believe that impeachment works? And I think in an era of partisan division, the one thing it cannot effectuate is um, removal of a president. It's only the only time it all seemed likely to happen. Nixon resigned, of course, we don't know for sure, but was the Nixon and the parties were not that far apart then. So without partisan division, then removal uh, might be a possibility, even though it's only happened once in our history. But when you have partisan division, it's, it's difficult. And I guess the Johnson administration case shows that it's hard even when you don't, because there was a pretty strong Republican control of the Congress. They still couldn't quite remove him, but they did damage him enough, so he lost the next election. And whether that's happened to Trump or not, I guess, depends on your analysis of politics. You know, Maybe impeachment did a blow, maybe it was coronavirus seems like a stronger candidate for uh, what caused his loss. <laughs> in, in, in the chat, um, Diana Cabal asks, um, so with, with, with respect to, to silo law, so it, it takes a future Supreme Court decision to reverse a movement towards autocracy. That's sort of the question. Um, I, if, if to at least my interpretation to, I, I, I think, Diana, feel, feel free to hop in or unmute if, if you want to clarify or if I'm getting you wrong. No, I'm Whether, just wondering if there is a positive movement towards towards the autocracy is kind of as how we're seeing things going. Um, you know, I don't know that a, that another president coming in who has kind of inherited a bigger role of authority than he thought he might have or that she thought she might have 
is it going to take a future Supreme Court to kind of shrink that down again or, or reduce the trend towards the autocracy? Or is there something else that would step in to reverse that? Yeah, I, I think it's important that the Supreme Court reverse it. Um, and it's been going on. This long predates silo law. The broader perspective of the book is that this has been going on really uh, not, not in Youngstown, but since then. It was interrupted a little bit in the Guantanamo cases, but um, there's a huge grant of implied power by the presidents that begins in the 80s and, uh, and, and, and actually the 70s and the disabling of the few times Congress does try to check this power. So you need change in the Supreme Court, first of all, to, to reign in the president and also to allow the occasional efforts by Congress to countermand this to be effective. Um, you know, the big example of that is Chadha, right, which set, held the, um, the Congress tried to, um, when, when they delegate, part of the source of vast presidential power is delegation power to the president. So the president has enormous power. And I have an article coming out that argues that silo law is totally wrong because the threat of the collapse of separation of powers is really by the concentration of all the power of the executive branch in the government, in, in the president, including a lot of legislative power because they've delegated so much quasi-legislative power. That's the threat, not the bureaucrats that the court is fearing. And so they're way off base on their broader separation of powers uh, analysis. So this is this huge delegation, but Congress always conditioned this stuff by a legislative veto, which authorized one house of Congress or two houses to countermand any particular presidential decision, including importantly, exercise of war powers or emergency powers, which I also focus on heavily in the book as potential sources of democracy laws. And the court out um, declared that unconstitutional. And they've um, declined to enforce, they, they've uh, eviscerated checks in the emergency legislation in various ways. And some of this is through justiciability doctrine. So they just protect the president from lawsuits that try to rein him in. Uh, so yeah, I think the Supreme Court needs to step back and that's the thesis of the book and it shows how. Uh, it's not the only potential source. I mean, Congress is very important in this. Thank you. Mr. Smith. Hi. Yeah, thank you for being here today. Um, so I haven't necessarily followed up on everything as much as maybe I should have, but the impression I remember getting was that there was a number of these really um, you know, important issues that were coming towards the Supreme Court regarding presidential powers and protections. Um, and I had the impression that on a lot of these, you know, they, they avoided, they certainly didn't grant a, a judicial seal of approval on the sort of outrageous claims made by Donald Trump as president. Uh, but they also, in my impression, and, and like I said, I haven't necessarily followed up on all of it, was that they um, sort of sidestepped actually checking those and kind of punted and ran out the clock on his presidency. And I'm wondering to what degree, is that even an accurate assessment or, or not? And if you had any sort of thoughts or comments on the current makeup of the Supreme Court and what that might mean for um, you know, future issues along the same lines. And to, to be, you know, I'm thinking of like, there was the claim that Donald Trump had about shooting someone on Fifth Avenue and not even being 
subject to investigation until he left office and, and other claims about protections from uh, investigation and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I think what you said is basically right. Uh, the court's record in the Trump, Trump didn't win every case in the Supreme Court and they checked him occasionally, but on the whole, their response to his push to aggrandize executive power was to sanction it and, or to duck it and not allow the lower courts to check him. And so the important examples of that, um, one of the big ones is Mazars. So before Mazars, the expectation was Congress has broad authority to subpoena uh, the president's information, except uh, when it's privileged. And the court in Mazars for the first time said, um, you need to have a legislative purpose and we're gonna have courts pretty closely scrutinize whether legislative purchase justifies that. So they ended up limiting the powers, the subpoena powers of Congress to a greater extent than they have been, at least in respect to presidential information. But I predict it'll eventually apply to the executive branch as a whole. Um, the second example that um, there's sort of uh, two cases, uh, one is Trump versus EPA, and the other is one of the Guantanamo cases before Trump. Both of those cases, in essence, take a less strict view of individual liberty when the president asserts national security authority. And so there's precedent on the books that says if the president asserts national security interest, you might not get very strict scrutiny of what looks like violations, due process in the case of um, the, ter the terrorism cases during the Bush administration and equal protection with the travel ban in the case of Trump. Uh, and in, so there's, I can point to a few, the other thing that the court has done is the lower courts are pretty vigorous in checking power grabs by Trump, not terrible, not always, but uh, they, for example, they consistently checked evasion of the spending authority to try to build the wall on the Southern border and uh, the court uh, found a justiciability excuse to get rid of that. And that's a lot of what they do is they decline, they, they apply justiciability barriers very strictly when they're challenging presidential powers. And they're really liberal when people are alleging that Congress is encroaching on the executive branch. Professor Clark. Thank you. Hi, can you all hear me? Yes. I'm sorry, I'm outside. So uh, I don't know if, if you can't hear me, just let me know and I'll stop <laughs> with my question. Um, I, I wonder if the issue here is not really one uh, to address in a neutral fashion. Um, by that, I mean, the issue really whether the presidency has too much authority uh, or Congress should have more authority uh, or the judiciary should intervene more or shouldn't intervene more. I mean, I, what this feels like to me is there are times you want the court to be active, uh, but there are times that you think the court's been too active, uh, too interventionist, particularly when it's limiting Congress's subpoena power and that sort of thing. Uh, and similarly, I mean, there are times where 
you want the courts to intervene against the president. Maybe there are times you don't want the courts to intervene uh, and limit the president. Uh, and to some extent, when, when anybody's citing these lower court decisions, we have to realize those cases get filed in sympathetic districts by the parties bringing them, whichever side they're on. They go to Texas, they go to Hawaii, or they go to the Pacific Northwest, if they're progressive. So I don't know how much you can read into the lower courts doing this or that on these things, because there's this, this court uh, forum shopping problem in the lower courts. Um, but it, the, it seems to me, I guess it, it, I resist saying the Congress is the problem or the Senate is the problem. It reminds me of um, people getting, Democrats getting annoyed at Barack Obama for blaming, quote, Congress for things. Um, I mean, the fact of the matter is we have one political party in this country that wants a conservative authoritarian in office. They loved it. They voted for senators to support it. Senators are terrified of primary challenges if they opposed it. Uh, and we have another party that does not want a right-wing authoritarian in power. Uh, and while you may not have the, um, the public media organ that you have in some of the Eastern European countries, you've got a private sector one that does does the job anyway so why do, why would you even need the public the public one and I, it just feels to me like the root of this problem is is not uh, a, a sort of neutral institutional assessment of which branch is, is is doing too much and not doing enough in the abstract but that we have just a real problem of a large number of people in this country who want a right-wing authoritarian well, I would argue, I, I guess I'd say a couple of things in response to that. One is um, the, the Trump's, uh, th that condition was created by Trump, not completely out of whole cloth, but he has driven the politics toward authoritarian direction uh, using some of the same techniques that we see in these countries. I haven't talked much of the politics, but the demonization of outsiders is a big part of the story. Um, and Viktor Orban and Yaroslav Kaczynski um, defended themselves, defined themselves as defenders of Christian civilization against the, the uh, Islamic hordes trying to come in from Syria, even though they're actually looking to pass through their countries to get to West Germany and more hospitable places. Um, but so, so that was driven by the president. I, I, the reason I, I like to think of this in somewhat neutral institutional terms is I don't think that I have, as a law professor, I have much unique to contribute to the political debate. Um, I certainly agree with where, that a large part of the Republican Party is an authoritarian party, and they look very much like the parties that are supporting the authoritarian governments in these countries. Um, but for the Supreme Court, their institutional imagination is defined by the framers. And the framers actually were afraid not just of presidential authority, but actually the legislative tyranny. And uh, they, the Silowak opinion in particular, emphasizes legislative tyranny. And in earlier ages, the court 
was much more concerned about presidential tyranny. The good example of that is Youngstown, because there, there are sections of that that you don't usually read in Con Law 1, where the court talks about the experience of democracy loss in Germany, and that informs their analysis that they're not going to let Truman go seizing steel mills, because their imagination has been stimulated by understanding the way the world around them works. And I argue that the Supreme Court needs to a look at the world around them and the way it works. And the, the lesson from that is legislatures, while they occasionally do foolish things, are not usually the primary th threat to ending democracy. It's heads of state. And they need to have a neutral assessment of that. They can look back into history and see that the founders were actually concerned about both. So there's no need to have this emphasize, emphasis on the legislature's threats that it has. Um, so I think in terms of influencing courts, having some sort of neutral framework and institutional analysis like this is important. Having said that, I don't disagree with your political analysis. <laughs> well, I, I mean, and I, I appreciate, I appreciate the, the folks like us should stay out of the political science realm if it's beyond our, our expertise and it's beyond mine uh, as an undergraduate degree uh, as well. Um, but I do think there are, it's a double-edged sword to have the, the neutral um, framework. And, um, you know, some of the, I, I'm not sure the current situation resonates that much with Nixon or Johnson. I'm not, I'm less sure because I'm less familiar with the Eastern European uh, experience, but um, the, the problem uh, and with, and with the, the, to me, the, the issue isn't the limit on the presidential ability to fire, because most of the positions with Trump were things where he had the authority to fire. They're, they were mainline Justice Department people, the attorney general, that, that sort of thing. It wasn't these quasi-independent uh, agencies, for the most part, that was the source of concern. Um, and uh, we, we allowed the independent counsel law to expire because we found there were problems with having that uh, overly independent with Ken Starr. Uh, and other experiences. I just, I, you know, there is a problem that uh, Congress is absolutely dysfunctional because of one party. Uh, to the extent that party has control, Congress is incapable of responding. And, and while it seemed like the neutral critique um, was what you was what um, could gain some legitimacy and currency in, in, in to fill to fill the critical role in the Trump administration. What happens when it's a Biden administration trying desperately to stop uh, to to stop um, global temperature rise and takes a lot of unilateral actions because Congress simply can't do anything um, or uh, moves to protect. Uh, dreamer uh, kids because Congress just can't do anything. But the reason they can't do anything is because one party just will not engage uh, and, uh, and, and compromise on anything ever. Uh, and so I wonder if the neutral criticism ends up then becoming a problem when it gets used against you when That's, we're in the face of, a, of some crises. I, I think you're right. You know, if you I guess the question is, what do you want courts to do? Do you want them to give up all efforts to try to be 
some, they're not going to be neutral because it's impossible to make these decisions without values influencing it. But if you don't want them to strive for some sort of even-handed neutral legal principle, what do you want them to do? Just be political agents of the party that appointed them? That's not going to get you very far. That'll get you even worse. But well, I, I think that's actually what we have now, frankly, with the U.S. Supreme Court. To to be blunt about it, I agree with you though. We need some neutral foundation. Well, for we, the have, we have too much of we have too much of that. But on the other hand, this court did uh, disagree with Trump about the Census Bureau. There were, were occasions where it pushed back against Trump. It allowed a prosecution to go forward against him against the state government. It's not completely captured yet. Uh, and all of the federal courts, including Trump appointed judges, rejected Trump's electoral challenges. So that that tradition of neutrality is a bit of a safeguard, even though it's, you know, even, and I think it's a problem we're getting too far away from it. I do think you have to accept the idea that one of the things I recommend in the book is more checks by the court on the exercise of emergency powers. Now, I've been an advocate of doing something serious about climate disruption my whole life. And one of the available moves that's being talked about is emergency powers. And I have to accept that if I want the courts to enforce a rule that has the kind of scrutiny that I think will be necessary to keep emergency powers from being abused, to subvert the polity and destroy democracy, I have to accept that it'll probably also be used to curtail its reliance as a source of uh, power to aggressively regulate the economy to get rid of greenhouse gases without congressional support. They're going to have to be limited to what they can justify under the Clean Air Act and other statutes. Um, I think you have to pay that price if you want to preserve a democracy. That won't always produce, you're right, though, neutral rules or even principled rules that aren't completely neutral are not going to produce the political outcomes you want in every case. We're, we're, we're approaching um, the uh, sort of one, one o'clock hour and um, losing some participants. Um, just wanted to mention, uh, to, so um, if, if, if you're able to uh, sort, sort of go in another couple of minutes, Professor Dreesen, we've got two more questions, if that's if that, if that works. Yeah. Cool, great. Um, so one, one question, and I, I know you wrote about this a little bit in the paper with respect to the take care clause. Um, Professor Buffington uh, asked, you know, if, if you could speak a little bit about the relevance of the take care clause to the discussion. You know, I know that's something you've written about elsewhere too. And then we also have, um, maybe if, if we take two together, uh, Greg Butler, um, whose uh, screen name is Themis, uh, had a question too. Greg, if you want to unmute and jump in. Yeah, sure. I you know, listen, I, I've, I've watched this stuff for years. I worked in the Justice Department and I wrote a lot of the letters back and forth to Congress that, um, uh, you know, challenged executive authority over the years. But, you know, as you look at this historically, it, it just appears as if we're, we're more and more into a period of time where the winner's going to make the rules. And, um, you know, if you don't like the way things were running last time, if you gain power, then you change the rules. You, you, uh, you add states, you add uh, judicial seats, uh, you know, you work more by executive authority, you get rid of the filibuster, what, whatever it happens to be. Each side just seems like they're going to, um, uh, you know, operate under the principle of the ends justified the means with little or no regard to uh, either historical precedent or 
you know, the Pandora's box they're creating. So, you know, I, I think all of this is great. I think that, uh, you know, the rule of law should be supreme here. I think the court should be um, uh, supreme in making some of these judgments. But unfortunately, I think it really is, as they say, war by other means. And people are taking it seriously and taking no prisoners. Okay. Uh, so response to the first question, the take care clause. What the take care clause says is that the president should take care that the laws uh, be faithfully executed. That tells you a couple things. First of all, that the president does not have the authority to faithfully execute the law. Because it doesn't say that he, he, they could just said the president should faithfully execute the laws. This is a vision of a president take, trying to execute, make sure the laws are uh, executed properly without the power to do it himself. Uh, so the, the, the actual, if you look carefully what the clause says, it is not, first of all, it's a duty. And second of all, it does not presuppose thorough power. Um, and the second thing to say about the take care clause is we know that it doesn't encompass the unitary executive theory. And the reason we know that is the New York Constitution had identical wording just about a vesting clause, a take care clause, but guess who appointed and removed officers? An executive council, the governor never had that power. So the, the existence of a take care clause does not justify the unitary executive and the vesting clause in my view does not justify the unitary executive theory. And the other thing is that the point that the silo law of dissent points out is that there is a clause in the constitution that authorizes the necessary and proper clause authorizes the Congress to regulate the executive branch. There's explicit language to that effect. So it's very difficult to say that, you know, even if the executive power would in the, in, by default, give the president complete control of the executive branch. It's difficult to say that that's indefeasible. It can't be changed by Congress. That just reads the necessary and proper clause out of the Constitution. All right, as the point that the winners uh, are going to write the rules and they're going to ignore all of this, um, that is a big problem. That's a big reason that partisan division tends to be a consistent cause of autocracy is that one side sees its loss as irredeemable and then writes the rules to favor itself and that's how democracies die. I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure we're seeing that. I mean, to take the court packing idea, yeah, the, the progressives would like to see uh, the court packed or de-packed they might say, but they would like to see more Supreme Court justices added. Um, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried that, the Democratic Party, even in a uh, dis, uh, dissented, Biden has, has temporized on this by creating a commission and it's put on the commission all sorts of establishment types who are former Supreme Court clerks who are gonna be the last people in the world to accept that this is a good idea, most of them. So I, and, and I think there's reluctance to do this within the Democratic Party. So I'm, I'm not sure, I, I think you're right about the fundamental dynamic. I'm not sure it's completely that way, um, but yeah, that's a big threat. And it, it makes it very hard for the court to function or for the democracy to survive 
when it's all a winner take all thing. There has to be, we had to hope for a change in the underlying political dynamic or we're gonna be in deep trouble. And work for it. <laughs> on, on that positive and uplifting note, um, I, I think we're gonna, uh, uh, Professor Dreesen, thanks so much for sharing your work with us and presenting your article and um, the argument that you raise, that you advance in the book. Um, we look forward to looking at the book when it comes out and I uh, appreciate you joining us uh, today. Um, and thank you very much for your time and to all of our guests uh, uh, and, and participants in the audience. Thank you for another successful season of First Mondays. And like uh, Professor Rehan said, stay, stay tuned for season three in the fall. Uh, so just a, a round of applause for Professor Dreesen today um, over, over Zoom. Uh, thank you so much and uh, look forward to your, your future work in this area.